Blog Talk Radio. He was up each morning with the dawn because he knew his daily run was long and hard and he had to be ready to get his freight train down the track determination he would never lack a little locomotive called Freight Train Freddy. Hi everyone, welcome to Getting on Top. I'm your host Paul Morris. We're here Tuesdays now from 4 to 4.30 p.m. That's East Coast time and we broadcast from the southern Hudson Valley region of New York State. If you're out of town, that's the northern suburbs of New York City, my hometown. And um, we have a call-in number if someone would like to uh, uh, call in with a comment or a question for me and my guests. It's one three four seven two one five nine four five six. And that little ditty was Freight Train Freddy from the book of the same name that I wrote. It's a rhyming children's story about a 19th century steam engine. And the one who sang it and wrote that song is Peter Tizone, who was also the illustrator of the book. Uh, beautiful uh, paintings and illustrations that Peter does. If someone would like to see some of his illustrations from the book and see some of my rhymes, you can go to ftfcreations.com. That's FTF as in Freight Train Freddy. Creations.com. And uh, I'm very happy today to have with us Dr. Samantha Slotnick. Uh, today's show is called Envision Your World with Behavioral Optometry. And Dr. Slotnick is a licensed optometrist practicing in Scottsdale, New York. And uh, she found a way to a specialty of behavioral optometry via personal experience, motivated by a life-changing impact of a non-conventional prescription. Dr. Slotnick pursued optometry as a career. Since graduating optometry school, she has continued to explore the visual process as an active participant. In her behavioral optometry practice, she takes the whole person as a holistic approach to vision care. On the show, we'll be talking about her specialized approach to eye and vision care, and you can find her at drslotnick.com. That's D-R-S-L-O-T-N-I-C-K.com. If anyone's interested in finding out more about me and what I do, you can go to depressivesanonymous.org, depressivesanonymous.org. Well, welcome today, uh, Dr. Slotnick. How are you? Thank you. I'm well, thank you, and uh, thank you for inviting me. My my pleasure, and since I know you off the air, I'll call you Samantha, if you don't mind. I can and, live with that, uh, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yes. Uh, we met at a health fair a little while back. So It was actually a lot of fun interacting with you at the health fair. You kept coming back, and I felt like there was just more you needed to hear about, and I was thrilled that you decided to come and learn a little bit more firsthand, and you came to one of my workshops. And um, so thank you for being curious and um I'm curious to know what it what springs up for you and 
how you'd like to direct our conversation. Well, I mean, we do have a lot in common. I know uh, uh, your mom is a friend of mine, and also you went to the same optometrist as my daughter, who was about the same age as you. Oh, <laughs> how about that? In the neighborhood, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a bit, there's a bit uh, connection, and uh, we just talked off the air about your teacher who is a lady who lives right across the street from me. So, anyway, <laughs> but getting back to optometry. Uh, yeah, well, you're you're an interesting person, and also your approach seems a little, uh, you know, different and uh, holistic. That's mm. why you were at a holistic fair. So, yep. what is holistic or behavioral optometry? How does that differ from, you know, well, regular optometry? Um, yeah, when I when I refer to myself as a holistic practitioner. It's very important to me that I keep in mind that I'm treating a person with eyes. I'm not treating a pair of eyes. I'm not treating the um, the visual system of a person, but I'm treating a person. And the use of one's vision, how one uses their visual process, is really integral to how a person organizes themselves. So we actually find little mirrors everywhere of how we put ourselves together in how we use our own natural skills. And um, a lot of people don't really have an awareness of how much is involved in the visual process and how much it interacts with uh, how we deal with everyday life, how we deal with stress. Um, I, these are things that we pick up right on a primary exam where you know people who are resilient, who can take on stress and, and rebound from it, it shows up in how well they coordinate their eyes as a team. People who are flexible in their thinking, uh, people who are able to make change quickly are going to be more flexible in how they use their focusing system. People who are, um, let's say, have more inertia in their system, maybe they're really good at something once they get on a roll, they can kind of keep going, but it's hard to motivate. The same thing happens right in their focusing system. They may have trouble getting their focusing system moving, but then once they do, uh, they can keep it moving. And so we end up seeing these little mirrors coming back at us about how we take care of ourselves. And um, as a holistic practitioner and as a person who is on my own path um, as, as a human being, uh, we all are, of course, but I think it's, um, for me, very important to take the opportunity to see oneself and in how we impact the world around us, uh, see how we organize ourselves, have that reflection so that we can make progress and make change where we wish and uh, project ourselves into the future we want to see for ourselves. So it's really a whole person that I work with when they come in to interact with me. Mm. Well, you know, the other, one of the other motivations uh, I had to go into your, you know, your, your uh, workshop uh, was that I've always had a reading disability, and it, mm. it, it really uh, hampered me tremendously uh, going to school. Uh, because I read very slowly, my reading comprehension was always extremely poor, so I had to spend two or three times the amount of time doing homework often mm. as an average or you know advanced person. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so, you know, that was something, you know, I was interested. Also, uh, you gave me a little test there at the fair. Uh, mm-hmm. was, and I remembered it, and I realized as I'm reading, you know, I'm a big reader now uh, since college, mm-hmm. um, that I... You told me I guessed at words, and you were right. I realized in, in reading the books, I'd go back, and I would. I thought I said I read one thing, and I went back, and it was something uh-huh. else. I remember you making that comment that uh, you uh-huh. you analyzed my reading, uh, my type of the way I read, and said that, and turned mm-hmm. out uh, obviously you were correct. So it's very interesting. You know, you can go through life never even knowing that you're doing something with your eyes or reading in a certain mm-hmm. way and how it could uh, affect, you know, your comprehension. So, so your adaptations that you make as an intelligent individual who wishes to learn more are basically mm-hmm. to help you get through the material. And uh, one of the things that actually people may say, it, uh, I hear this from young patients, kids. I, I do work a lot with children, not exclusively, but I do work with children quite a bit and, um, some of the more insightful ones, I had a young lady in here recently. She said, well, I do enjoy reading as long as I know what the topic is. And when I do, I could read pretty quickly. But when I am not familiar with the topic, I have to read and reread, and I may not even realize if I lose my place unless someone else points it out to me. And so what she had a realization of is that when she knows what's coming, she's better at keeping on track or catching her errors when she goes offline, where she might skip a line or repeat a line. And that those are things that when you have the context, you troubleshoot those things because the purpose of reading is to acquire information. You read to learn. Now, when you're in the early grades and you're just learning to read, instead of reading to learn then it's very common that you may be skipping lines or words and not be aware of it. You haven't yet made that transition to reading as a a simple physical act that is supported by your your intellect. You know, your your intellect guides the Mm -hmm. process after a while. Um, You're talking about context. Yes. So when you were reading this, um, I, I gave you something to read that was, not organized in the typical way. Uh, You had to read up and down. And so it wasn't um, something that you were doing by rote. Your eyes didn't know what the pattern was yet. And you were working so hard at figuring out the pattern that you found it extremely difficult to to figure out what the words were. And as a result, you, uh, you took whatever shortcuts you could come up with. So you would fill in. You would see like the beginning couple of letters and take a an educated guess at a possible word that might fit the bill. It would fit the grammar. It you know you you chose words that were um, the right part of speech, but not necessarily a, a perfect match. So reasonable uh, so but also, not correct. <laughs> correct, exactly. And and actually, one of the things that happens with kids very often is they may be looking at a couple of letters, but not taking in the whole word. And there's a really good reason for this, actually. Some of these kids, let me give you a, a can I can I chat a little about this kind of a situation? Sure. Um, 
So, for example, let's say a child has poor handwriting and the teacher is complaining, well, the, the words are, the letters are up and down, the words aren't all on the line, they don't space them well, it's hard to know where the end of one word is and the beginning of the next. Mm-hmm. And so when that's going on, a lot of the time the first thought is, well, they have trouble with their handwriting, they may have poor fine motor skills. And absolutely, that may often be the case. However, it's just not the whole story. So a lot of the time, children will struggle with writing skills because they are so super focused on the letter that they are writing in that moment, they are not using their peripheral vision to guide them along the line. And whether they're writing or they're reading, they may be doing the same thing. So it's the same parallel where you would look at a word, but you just were inspecting the beginning and kind of estimating the length of the word, you take an educated guess. Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing is happening in the handwriting situation where kids sometimes are only looking at a couple letters, but they're not planning their way ahead. And so at different ages, we will see these same tendencies show up, but in a different way. To talk a little bit more about the children, for example, because, um, you know, this is such a common thing in the schools. Well, the result is they end up, of course, riding uphill or downhill or just irregularly, but there's another hidden problem at play here, too. Um, let me try to set this up for you so it, it comes together. I want you to do kind of a visualization with me. I want you to imagine that you're watching me, and you're going to look at my eyes, but I'm going to look at my finger, which I'm holding about two feet in front of my eyes. And so you watch me and keep your eyes on my eyes. I'm going to slowly guide my finger in towards my nose. And your observation, of course, is going to be that my eyes are going to turn in quite a bit, right? Mm. So, yeah. well, well, for some folks, keeping both of their eyes aimed at that near point in space is actually physically very difficult for them to sustain. So, in fact, for some kids, it it can even be painful. They struggle to get their eyes on point at near. So what happens is, especially while they're writing, these kids try to use their big muscles to drive the small ones so that they can keep their eyes coordinated for single vision while trying to write on a page at near point. So they are putting all of this extra muscle and they curl their body in. You'll see these kids on a desk, in front of the desk, getting extremely close to the table. Assume, let's say, they're right-handed, like 90% of us are. And you'll see right-handed kids curling their arm above and around the line of print, which is more typical for a lefty who needs to be able to see what they've written. Well, right-handed people don't need to get their hands in the way. And yet, often the case, these kids who are under visual stress, They're putting so much physical effort into writing that they are curling their arm around as a a big muscle telling the small muscles to aim inwards, to keep them on task. And one of the things they get is this little telltale, I call it the inky on the pinky. I used to have one. I had a little callus on my pinky on the outside corner, and it would be covered in ink, especially while we had these erasable pens, you know. So, mm-hmm. so they'll have this telltale inky on their pinky at the end of the day. It could be from pencil. But basically, they're just rubbing their hands right over the line of text yeah. and smearing it as they write. So yeah. these kids who are working really hard at getting their eyes on point one of the first things you see is that they're straining to write 
They write really small. They don't take in much peripherally. Their line spacing, it, you know, the letters aren't falling on a line with one another. They go uphill. They go downhill. And that's if they have lines. If they don't have lines, so that, all bets are off. So that's, is that something you could correct, you're saying? Well, absolutely, because a lot of the time it's it's a visual problem that's interfering. And these same kids, you know, the the in school they may look like they're tired or they're lazy because they're leaning ahead, their head on their arm, for example, writing their with their right hand and leaning on the left on the left arm. They may be blocking off the vision from one eye, and they may do that because it actually alleviates some of that eye teaming demand. So, so what other implications are there in life with for this problem? In life I mean, in general. There? Well, basically, yeah, I mean, you're, you're saying so it's something, what it's we do is something wrong well, with their to, vision? I'm sorry? That this is an indication of some problem with their vision or the way of their eyes are focusing? It's definitely a strong symptom with these handwriting problems, but they may yeah. be struggling with an underlying vision problem. Yeah, because they're struggling to keep their eyes on point, it takes them effort to aim their eyes within arm's reach. It takes them even so, more effort to focus accurately and even more to tap across the page. Does that so affect other aspects of their life besides absolutely. the writing? Absolutely. Well, some yeah. of these kids, they're struggling. First of all, take this child and bring them home, and you're going to find that while they may have a hard time in school, they hold themselves together in the classroom, and then they go home, and there's a homework war between them and their mom or their dad because it takes them hours to do, like, 20 minutes worth of homework. They find that they have to read. And, you know, when they get into the higher grade levels, they're reading, they're rereading, they're reading again, and they're trying to read out loud. You see them moving their lips while they're reading because they're trying to skip the visual process and go through auditory processing just to get their information in. They're, sometimes they have trouble with, um, with other concepts. They, they may be smart in everything with school, for example, because they're working so hard on the visual and eye-hand coordination aspects of the schoolwork that they don't have the freedom to be clever in the classroom tasks. So their, their mom may see them come home and they're spending an hour undisturbed playing Legos, but when they're in the classroom... They're uncomfortable. They have trouble sitting still, for example. Okay. Um, so you you may find that I, these kids avoid reading. Yeah. Okay. I I, I mean we we only have limited time. Uh, it's mm -hmm. interesting. So I would think for the audience, the takeaway would be you know if they have children or grandchildren uh, who who are doing this, they should you know have them checked out. Yeah. What the other, vision problem. What other things actually, do you come across? you know, uh, with kids or even adults that, you know, are issues that you can uh, correct? Well, I think, you know, going back to the holistic question, when a child doesn't feel like they can be successful in the classroom, they start to end up with doubt. They doubt themselves. They doubt how they feel about themselves. They think, you know, why am I not smart? Why am I not doing well? Why do I need the extra help? And how come my friend doesn't need the extra help? And so these things start to wear on them on a whole person level. You know, when they're struggling in school, a lot of things just don't seem easy and their own natural gifts don't come out. And, you know, kids who have vision problems, if they're not treated, they just grow up to be adults who have vision problems. 
they end up growing up with the same challenges, the same tendencies to um, solve problems or avoid problems. There are some kids who push through. There are some kids who make adaptations to try to change how they function just so that they can get through, but they may not enjoy it. So they don't learn to enjoy reading. They don't learn to become independent or self-directed learners. Uh, Some of them, they have trouble with problem solving. They have trouble with uh, self-esteem and self-awareness because they don't feel good about themselves. So they don't get to find that place where uh, whatever it is that makes them happy or feel like they're in the zone. You know, some kids do find it. They find that they're good at sports or they find that they have a gift for music uh, or for art. But some kids just are working so hard around the clock, they don't find their zone. And really, as I said, they they just grow up to be adults with some of these same underlying problems. And, of course, they deal with them differently. How long does it take to, uh, to fix this type of problem? Well, there's a, like I said, there's a variety of systems that are involved. You need to be able to see clearly and single. And so the eyes have to work together as a team. They have to focus. They have to stay coordinated and focused in every direction of gaze. And really one of the most important aspects is that the peripheral vision has to be up and functioning so that you know where you are and you know where you're going. And so depending on how many compensations the person has made, the longer you go without the support, the longer it may take. Now, in a lot of cases, I love it when I can put a pair of glasses on a kid and they change for themselves. They reorganize themselves. They just need like a little step stool to get them going, to make them more comfortable, and to help them feel like they can go and do it for themselves now. So they become more independent, more self-sufficient, more self-directed. And so sometimes it's as simple as just getting the right pair of glasses in front of a patient at the right time. And, um, you know, as the problems become, uh, you know, if you wait too long and the problems continue to manifest and evolve, um, then it may take more active support or retraining. But the Mm -hmm. thing is that vision is learned. And developmentally, we go through certain stages and we move along and we move forward. Sometimes we get stuck. And so some of these cases need a little bit more help. The average kid who comes in, um, I would say, really, they just need the right pair of glasses, and we check in with them to make sure they stay supported. Some kids, I do um, I do have vision therapy as a, a big part of my practice, and I help kids who need to relearn how to use their eyes and their vision skills. And... Um, it could be a six-month process. It could be a little shorter. It could be longer. It depends on how long it takes uh, or how long down the road they come to right. me. So uh, there's also another question which I'm sure a lot of people have. Uh, there are typically three types of people you go to for your eyes is the uh, medical mm-hmm. doctor, mm-hmm. Uh, the optometrist, as you are, mm-hmm. and then an optician. Mm-hmm. So what you know? What's the difference between those three for the uh, audience? So yeah, the um, the medical doctor is the ophthalmologist, and the ophthalmologist is in fact that it is a medical doctor, an MD, who has gone through medical school and then gone on and done residency training to specialize in the health of the eye. And so they really work on the eyes, the eyeballs, 
Um, they spend the most of their time and their training on dealing with health issues regarding the eye. And um, that can include things like cataract or glaucoma and surgery. And um, So that's, that's ophthalmology. And, of course, you need a healthy eye in order to see clearly. But the focus of optometrists is vision first as a priority because in, uh, in order to see well, yes, we do need to have healthy vision. So we also are trained in evaluating a lot of the medical aspects, vision and a vision care. But the optometrist is likely to spend probably a bit more time working on um, some of the eye teaming or eye focusing, especially working with kids. We may come in with a slightly different approach for working with visual problems in function because our priority has always been vision first. Now, of course, independently, people develop their practices in different areas, and um, the behavioral optometrist or the developmental optometrist, as some people call themselves as well, um, they are more trained towards the functional support. So people like myself who uh, do have expertise in functional vision problems and working with kids will spend more time on um, eye teaming and coordinating the uh, coordination between focusing and converging or uh, coordinating the eyes for near, uh, tracking problems. Those are things that would really go into the purview of the behavioral optometrist particularly. And you asked also about the other O, the optician. So the optician mm -hmm. is trained at uh, making eyeglasses and um, being able to craft them and customize them for the person. There's a lot involved as far as material science and optics and making sure the frame fits well. And I do think that having a strong optician on board makes a huge difference. I try to make sure that I make recommendations for my patients to work with opticians. I actually don't have an optical in my office, so um, I, I send patients to work with opticians who take good care of them and are um, delicate with them, And uh, especially when I prescribe something a little more subtle. So, mm -hmm. you know, there there are three professions. They all started in... Um, for different purposes, but I'd say that the, the main organ that the behavioral optometrist works on is the brain, and the eyes are merely a portal to that um, use of the brain as far as how we see. Vision doesn't occur in the eyes. It actually occurs in the brain, and so when we help people make changes, we're making changes in how we make use of the eyes as sensors and pull that information through the eyes and process it in the brain. So we can make changes in how well we coordinate, how we focus, how we team our eyes, but we can also make changes in how much of our use of peripheral vision we have. How perceptive are we? How do we use our visual memory? How well do we visualize? And this affects, of course, math and problem solving and concepts. How well do we make images and hold them in our minds? How, do, how well do we see associations between different things. And so that's where we really get into the realm of visual information processing as a way to help people maximize their use of their visual process. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what do most uh, adults come in for? And how do you, what are the issues that adults have primarily? Well, I think every 
adult is in their own place in life. And again, as a holistic practitioner, I uh, I want to know what are you, what are they up to, what are they keeping themselves occupied with, where where are their interests, and what would they like to be able to do that perhaps they aren't doing? Where might they feel restricted? I often get adults who may feel like they just don't enjoy reading as much as they used to. And, uh, you know, some of them, of course, they tell me, well, my arms are too short because they know that their focusing system is not working as well and they hold things farther out. Some people fight it and some people uh, avoid it. And so um, I try to give them something more optimal for what they need to help them function more comfortably. And um, I do actually work with some adults in therapy as well. And some of them, uh, I actually have a, a number of patients who are adults in therapy right now. Um, they've come to me for reasons like they lack depth perception. I have one gentleman who's really? a, a weekend warrior. He's trying to maximize his game on the baseball field, and he is an incredible athlete. And his his game has just gotten in, um, enhanced by coming and working with me in free space and in depth perception. And we change how he looks at the information. We change how well he's able to organize himself with um, keeping his attention to the whole picture and yet keep his eyes focused to the task right in front of him. And so um, people who come to me as adults, sometimes they have um, something they'd like to enhance. Sometimes they come to me because they feel like they're too dependent on their glasses and they'd like to free themselves. Um, really? I try, yeah, I, I, I try to coordinate with patients so they can learn to maximize their own use of their vision. And um, to me, the, the use of glasses, it really should be as a tool. Glasses are tools that help you do more than you're able to do without them. In the same way that a screwdriver is a useful tool, but perhaps you can still unscrew a, you know, a bolt that's been stuck, but you may, if you keep working at it, you may start hurting yourself. You may get a cut or a scrape. If you've been trying at this for a while, you get calluses. You can do it, but it's not so easy. So you get the right tool with the right leverage, and you take some of that effort off the table. And what that does is it frees you. It frees you up cognitively. It frees you up to be more perceptive so that you can take more from your experiences on other levels than the physical level. And just right. drop well, that physical drain. That's a good analogy. I mean, my uh, my problem, I definitely still have uh, vision uh, issues, but, you know, listening to you about the adults is interesting because, uh, I mean, I was saved in school because some I was good in math and science, didn't mm-hmm. take as much reading, uh, so that would, you know, I was able to, uh, you know, help me a lot. But, and mm-hmm. I was always, you know, very persistent about <laughs> and determined to get through uh, my studies. Mm-hmm. But, but it, but I never, but because of my, you know, uh, problem with reading, I never read for pleasure until I got out of college. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and then, I mean, it's almost actually comical now thinking back. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, the, the the books that people were talking about, if they were too big, too long, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's embarrassing. I would They're read them when, they, when they, you feel like it's they were, um, slogging it out every page that you earn. You know, 
But I, I totally understand. I, you know, when you feel like you're slogging it out, where where it's a fight for every page that well, you read, it, because it, it's effort. Well, it was actually I was wrong. I mean, I I I, I did it. And I was wrong about it because what happened was, I mean, I remember the Godfather was raised in the early 70s and everyone was reading it and it looked like mm-hmm. it was too big for me to read, huh. you know, it was too much of a, a slog and I didn't bother. It was right. one of the greatest books. That's I such a good book. <laughs> novel I, well, I eventually read. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. No, but what, how was, what happened was just, for, you know, just a lucky break on my part. I was going on a business trip, and uh-huh. I needed something to read, and I, I picked up the book Shogun. Oh, uh, wow. That's a big one. Which is like <laughs> nine, it's like 1,100 pages. Right. And it was such a great book that I flew mm. right through it, you know. It was so fascinating about the uh, history of Japan. Can I ask you a question about that? that can area. I ask you? Yeah, do yeah. you remember reading the words on the page, or do you remember the pictures that you made in your head? Well, I'm not a visual person, so I'm not big on pictures. I'm auditory. So mm-hmm. I would imagine, you know, I, I may have made pictures in my mind, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and definitely. Well, that's the thing, but, that but the real reading process is really about creating that imagery somehow internally. Well, Whether we see it in full-fledged color or well, not is another question. But we yeah, don't really realize consciously what we read as far as words on the page most of the time. Well, not as a good reader. Well, one of the reasons why visual people are such good readers, I mean, uh, it's often the case. Uh, and and visual isn't words. Words is actually words are auditory, even though you you see them with your eyes. They are they are considered auditory, but uh, they're both I, actually. You know, they're, they're both. Was, it's, um, it's an area where they come together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that you know. After doing that, it just opened the world, and I started reading mm-hmm. any book I wanted, uh, <laughs> you know, and, you know, I was very happy. To, but it was like, you know, it, was a breakthrough. You know, it, it, it unlocked me from yeah. this, this mental uh, thing I put upon myself, which was erroneous. Yeah, and, so you uh, have this limitation for yourself that you set for yourself because you were not finding a way to success while you were struggling in school. And you didn't enjoy it, and you didn't feel good about it, so you avoided it. But I think the good thing is that you you are a learner and you're curious, and so you found your way back to it on your own terms after you graduated. You weren't reading for pleasure until after you had the freedom to make some choices and not feel the yoke of somebody else having a requirement for you that was going to be well, hard for you to meet. It, it was, yeah, but it, it was self-imposed, and it was. But it just shows mm-hmm. you how people uh, put themselves in a in a box, right? When, they make choices you know, just based by on their what own they feel uh, they do. erroneous thinking, often, and it's uh, you know, <laughs> it's it, it's a bad thing to do. In fact, in my practice, when I help people who work with emotional trauma, mm-hmm. and the people don't realize that they have the power to change themselves i don't really change them i just guide them they mm. make the change they didn't know they could so you're living with mm-hmm. this thing exactly. that you could change anytime you want you just don't know you can and mm-hmm. this is you know this is a big problem with people in general they they don't realize you know uh, the question is what would you do if 
if you knew you couldn't fail and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People uh, keep themselves back, and obviously I had I had done you know a similar kind of thing. We're getting towards the end of the show. Uh, is it? Would you like to kind of sum up? I would love to. Um, so I. I was thinking about, you know, what is important, what do people think about when they think about eyes, when they think about vision. And I think one of the things that when people get a little bit philosophical, um, they say, you know, many people believe that our eyes are the windows to the soul. And I, I personally believe that to be true. But I think what I enjoy most is that I really believe that window works both ways. And that we look through that same window. And so our visual process is our window on the world. So when we change how we use our vision, we change our potential. We expand our outlook. So when I work with my patients, it's, it's an honor and it's a privilege to work alongside them and to support them as they envision their world. So um, I guess I'd like to just leave off by saying if, it, if you're interested in finding out how you can maximize your use of your vision, I'd like to encourage you to contact myself or another like-minded behavioral or developmental optometrist who can partner with you in how you choose to see your world your way and help you or help your own your children, uh, your children's children, to change their potential. Um, I think there aren't a lot of people who know about this kind of work, and personally, I'm very committed to raising public awareness on these readily treatable visual problems. Futures change when children lose their self-confidence and lose their sense of possibility, and I'd like to help change them for the better and help them Get those opportunities back so, and own. So, their how can future. people get in touch with you if they're interested well, or, I, I do in any kind of uh, mm-hmm. any kind of uh, you know workshops that are going to be? Yeah, I do them. offer workshops and presentations for parents and for professionals who can learn to readily recognize the signs of children under visual stress. So, if you are local, I'd like to invite you come to one of my workshops. I'm also available to present to groups, professional enrichment, PTA meetings, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, just give us a call to coordinate or to request upcoming dates. It's the same number to make an appointment. It's 914-874-1177. You can also visit our website, which is drslotnick.com. That's D-R-Slotnick, like Sam, L-O-T, and like Nancy, I-C-K. And uh, our practice is in Scarsdale on 495 Central Park Avenue. My vision team is incredibly helpful and supportive, and um, they are here to help people, and we're always happy to either make a connection for them, send them in the right direction, or help them while they can be here. So um, I thank you again for allowing me the time and the opportunity to chat with your following, and uh, it's really a pleasure to talk to you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, (laughs) thank you, Dr. Samantha Slotnick, uh, for being on the air, and thank you, uh, listeners, for listening in. And again, if someone would like to find out more about me and what I do, you can go to depressivesanonymous.org. That's depressivesanonymous, 
like Alcoholics Anonymous, only for depressives. dot org, and uh, we'll be back uh, next Tuesday with another show. And thanks for listening. I'm gonna go out with uh, Freight Train Freddy. Bye. Bye bye. Bye, Samantha. Talk to you. <laughs> He was up each morning with the dawn Because he knew his daily run was long and hard And he had to be ready To get his freight train down the track Determination he would never lack The little locomotive called Freight Train Freddy Everybody was his friend And they all helped him to the end To keep those freight cars rolling along steady He never knew what to expect And was very careful not to wreck The little locomotive called Freight Train Freddy The little locomotive called Freight Train Freddy.